Hello and welcome to another episode of Congress Two Beers In. I'm Matt Glassman, Senior Fellow at the Government Affairs Institute. I'm here with Josh Huter, also Senior Fellow at the Government right. Affairs Institute. And Mark Harkin, same job, complaining already about the beer. What kind of beer are you drinking, Mark? Well, now I'm doing okay, but we've got all the citrus beer yeah. still. I mean, summer's over, guys. Yeah, it's, that's a lot of complaining. <laughs> I mean, it is still going to be 90 tomorrow. Yeah. So, all right. Well, then you drink. And we're also here uh, with special guest, Colleen Shogan, who is currently Assistant Deputy Librarian at the Library of Congress. Uh, formerly the deputy director of the Congressional Research Service, a staffer on the Hill for Senator Lieberman, who covered defense issues and defense appropriations, and a uh, former professor at George Mason University and currently a uh, professor at Georgetown University. Welcome, Colleen. Thanks, Matt. I'm really excited <laughs> to be here. Um, in my, and of course, my private capacity, not in my federal mm, yeah, government capacity. This is so. These disclaimers, where this was famous. Uh, Kelly and I were both working at CRS at the same time, and the claimers, disclaimers you have to give at the library are extensive because they don't want anyone confused that you're speaking on behalf of. The Congressional Research Service, the Library of Congress, the Speaker of the House, the Majority Leader. Right. Really, and Colleen is authorized by Congress. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I always, when I, when I used to give talks, it's always what I say. It's like, and just so you know, they make me say, I'm not here on behalf of the Speaker. And like, God help her if my comments you ever thought were coming from her. So, so well, now that we got that out of the way, uh, we wanted to remind you that Josh and I did a podcast about impeachment yesterday, two days ago. Two days Sometime ago. it was on Wednesday. Like 30 years so, ago. <laughs> It feels like about 30, 30 years ago, ago. Yeah. and uh, about impeachment. So if you want to hear about our impeachment thoughts, you can do that. We thought we'd go through a quick hit because one thing that uh, people noticed is that the president was making uh, a lot of bluster maybe or making uh, a lot of threats that impeachment could hold up the legislative agenda. Uh, and so what do you think about that, Josh? Well, I mean, it's a huge problem if you want to like keep the government open or like uh, <laughs> authorize defense uh, uh, programs. Um, the legislative agenda is basically done. They're not doing a whole lot, but there's a, some, you know, end of the year stuff that always needs to get done, and that includes appropriations bills, continuing resolutions, uh, the National Defense Authorization Act, which are all major legislation and must pass. So um, the question is, is impeachment going to get in the way of that? Um, and I don't actually know, but it does jeopardize a very, 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 very long-standing tradition of passing National Defense Authorization Acts, which is like, what, 57, 58 years now in a row, Colleen? Uh, 58, I think, at the, by the last count. So, I mean, the NDAA is important. They're, they're pretty far along on the NDAA process uh, thus far. I think they're, they're actually in a conference that the conferees were appointed by both houses, so uh, they're, they're moving along, but you still need final passage. You need agreement of, of um, that conference uh, agreement and report in both houses. So, uh, and of course, signature by the president, uh, unless there would be another route to passage, um, yeah. like an override, which we talked a little bit about. Yeah, I mean, I think this is just bluster from Trump, right? He's not gonna veto the CR when it gets to his desk tomorrow or whatever, no. and he's not gonna, Stop the NDAA, I don't think. I mean, I guess he could. Mark, Mark, Mark's, I, Mark's I making mean, eyebrows. I don't know. It, it is hard to tell. As I said, I had, had a class this week, and as I said, the difficulty that I think most of political Washington is having is that they're not used to dealing with somebody who's not from political Washington when they're negotiating. And whatever job you come into, you bring your former job with you. And President Trump has brought with him being a businessman, and he negotiates like a businessman, and that can lead to miscalculation and miscommunication. And one of the reasons I think we shut down the government for five weeks um, earlier this year was because of that miscalculation and miscommunication. I think one thing that's really interesting, if there was, so we are in the middle of a fake official impeachment inquiry, right? So, and that's kind of like joking. Um, but 
Uh, it is a real investigation. It does have teeth. It does have legs. Uh, Republicans are concerned in a way that they haven't been for the past three years because there are real, there's real wrongdoing, at least in their eyes, or at least they may be. Um, that's so been alleged. That's, that's been alleged. easier to understand. And so one thing that if the president would not want to do is jeopardize his Republican support in any way, shape, or form by like not giving many of his defense-oriented members things that they want, like funding and or an authorization bill. It'd be wise for him. So to, he's giving back the border wall money is what you're saying. <laughs> no, right? But like, it would be wise for him to, it really would be wise for him to try to keep ranks as tight as he could, um, especially as we're going through these early phases of this investigation. And who knows how long this stretches out. That does not mean that this is not going to happen. And I don't think that the president like not signing these bills or maybe vetoing one is going to jeopardize like members falling away from him necessarily, but you certainly don't want to aggravate members at a time when you're trying yeah. to keep everybody together. There's a bigger, I think, issue at stake here with the NDAA because it's the only authorization that uh, you know ha just continues and uh, that is, that has gone on. Like I said, for 58 years, there's nothing else that is right. has been followed with that regularity. Uh, certainly in any other area of policy, it stands alone. And um, I remember when I was on the Hill and, and worked on the NDAA in the Senate, but then also when I was at CRS and followed the NDAA really closely, uh, when you talk to armed services staff uh, in both houses, what they're very concerned about is if it would ever for one, any reason not be passed one year, let's say you skip a year, um, it's, that will have policy ramifications for military families, for bases, um, all kinds of things. So there's real policy consequences. But even beyond that, then there's an excuse not to do it the next year. And then, and then it, you know, it's right. going to be very hard to get it back on track. Yep. And that's why it keeps it, nobody wants to be the uh, chairman right. of either right. Ask or SAC when right. it fell right. apart. Yeah, and so, but if you, but it does fall apart, then it's how do you get that train back in the station? You know, is, I, would, I would separate NDAA out from the rest because I think it's a unique authorizing mm -hmm. bill because mm -hmm. of its long statute and because of the bipartisanship that you mm -hmm. usually see on Hasker Sass. I think a more interesting question is whether impeachment has derailed any other significant legislation. Like the president was talking about gun control legislation. And I there think was he was things on homelessness as well. Yeah, right? he was just trolling the Democrats with that. I don't think there were, he's any intention, or the Republicans had any intention of actually doing a substantial background check bill. I mean, I think both parties wanted to posture on that issue, mm -hmm. perhaps. And I don't see a whole lot else on the agenda. Right. Like the Democrats have like, their anti-corruption bills and their election security bills. Prescription drug Prescription prices. drugs, yeah, so maybe. Surprise bills. Surprise right. medical bills. Right, or some highway infrastructure bill that's sitting around the Senate, maybe. But no. I don't think any of this is real. No. And so, you know, this is, you know, I wouldn't call this necessarily a do-nothing Congress, but this is not going to be a Congress that achieves a lot, impeachment or not. Um, that said, like, I don't think there's any doubt that impeachment saps sort of the political capacity of the White House. Uh, or of the legislative branch that has to work on impeachment instead of spending time working on other things. I think that's absolutely true. If you yeah. believe the reports that are coming out today that, uh, on the timing of when this might all happen uh, concerning impeachment, uh, apparently there's been discussion and there's a lot of freshman members who are concerned as well, some of them in, in swing districts who want this kind of wrapped up. Uh, they don't want this to linger necessarily yeah. going into their re-election year. 
And uh, as a result, there's been some reporting that this might be wrapped up before the, the, the holidays. And yeah. so you take that to pro- mean maybe Thanksgiving holiday. And that, and I checked the CR dates, and the CR date's November 21st. Yeah. Right. So that's, I mean, that's a coincidence. That's there. a coincidence. I mean, right Look, next we'll to each omnibus. other. Impeachment and CR be one vote. Take it or leave right. it. Trump, do it all. Trump, you're going to shut down the government? We're going to get a special it. rule. We're going to fund the government and impeach. It's going to be right. good. Right. Right. So wrap it up. Right. It's a multi bill impeachment. It's a self executing rule that impeaches the president. <laughs> Maybe you heard of it. Check the CRS report. Exactly. On adoption of this resolution, the president is impeached. Right. You thought it was even passed with Obamacare. Where do you see this? And it's, it's, but it is really important for these bills to get across yeah. the line. I mean, one of the things that's underplayed, and we don't really talk about it anymore, is that how much prestige and power members get from passing a bill every single year. Mm-hmm. Um, committees are looked to, yeah. uh, it used to be that appropriations bills always passed because they guaranteed that they always passed because they knew that their power within the entire chamber was contingent on them passing an appropriations bill. I can scratch your back, right, as long as my bill gets across the line, which means people owe me favors, right, for doing them favors on this appropriation. And NDA is really the only place that still does something like that every single year. Um, so yeah. I think like they're going to want a really, really hard push to like get the president to sign this simply because they want to remain relevant. And like you say, they don't want to derail it in any way. Yeah, and his own yeah. constituency is, you know, I, I would think that Trump thinks that he has strong support amongst military, military families. It would seem to be a really... Uh, or at least the opposite, that he has a lot to lose. Right, a lot to lose. People. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I don't see that stopping. I mean, on the... So, but also, I mean, Colleen, when you were working on the Hill, yeah. this is true for me and... and guys have spent time there too our bosses as Josh said wanted to get something you want to get a bill across you want your name attached to something I mean our our chief staff here talks about how her boss after being in for 14 years finally got annoyed that there was not a single bill that got passed into law that was his name on it now he got many things in like the NDAA because he was on armed services but it didn't necessarily have his name on it this shutting everything down does make it more difficult for members to go back home. I mean, I mm-hmm. think that was true for Lieberman too, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, there were so many things that we would have riding them that on the NDAA. It was, mm-hmm. you know, absolutely was must pass. And of course, that was part Especially of the strategy. Yeah. And literally, as you know, some of the defense systems in the United States are built in such a way that there is a part built in every state yeah. in the United States, so that no, that's like you can actually get fifty, you know, fifty right. states behind it, a hundred senators behind it, because there is a part built in every yep. state. You know, and that's done on purpose to get the bill through. Right. And Connecticut is like a huge shipbuilder, just generally speaking. Yes, right, right. right. They love their submarines in Connecticut. Electric boat, absolutely. In Groton. I spent uh, spent many a day in Groton, and I went out on a nuclear submarine, actually. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, And it was... Very enlightening. I mean, a lot of people think they're Cold War instruments. They're really not. They're pretty stealthy, and, and they're important for surveillance purposes and really for our national security. I'm a big sub supporter. I was going to say, what's you the definitely yeah. never <laughs> stabbed somebody oh, from Canada. Yeah, I know. Oh, my God, the talking points. I did not. <laughs> I know. It's that like was, the subcommittee chair. That was 14 chair. years ago, and I can still just rattle it off. You look for Joe Courtney all of a sudden? What's going on? Rob Whitman in the room? I don't know what's happening right now. So, so what is this doing? I mean, I I know, Colleen, both you and I have sat through one impeachment already. Mm -hmm. Um, And and you were, if it was 14 years ago that you came Mm -hmm. off, then you were, were you actually on the started 14 years ago. No, 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 I wasn't. I was in graduate school, actually, when the the impeachment of President Clinton took place. 
But, I mean, it, it causes friction between the members, too. Yes. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of energy out of the room. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's what people are most worried about right now is we only have, what, six more weeks, essentially, before the presidential yeah. election takes over everything. Well, some people would say it already has, but I would say it hasn't. Well, why are you putting a six-week line in that, Mark? I think that once you get to the holidays, once you get to about Thanksgiving, Congress is done, right? We're going to get this next appropriations that's probably going to be a year-long CR, right? If they can figure out the wall issue. Um, but nothing else is really going to happen before the end of the year. And then once you turn the clock to January the 2nd or January the 3rd, Iowa, you're there. You're done. Mm -hmm. um, and what happens for the Democratic Party and for somebody like Nancy Pelosi is they no longer are the controller of the Democratic message. Yes. The for nominee sure. becomes the controller of the message. And Pelosi's sole reason to try to get things done is to make sure that she doesn't do anything to hamper the nominee. And if there are three or four people, and we assume mm -hmm. there'll probably be three or four people who come out of Super Tuesday, she's got to worry about all three or four of those people. And at that point, once we figure out who's coming out of Super Tuesday, she no longer controls the Democratic message that yeah. nominee does. And so you've got about six more weeks, I think, in Congress. And I think that's one reason why people want the impeachment to be done before the end of the year. Because if you're trying to impeach in March, oh, yeah, you April, <clears throat> that's a disaster. Yeah. Well, I, mm -hmm. just the idea of an impeachment coinciding with a general election that's even approaching of the incumbent president is just a mess from everybody's point of view, yeah. uh, both strategically and probably like normatively, right? It's probably not the best time to be be doing that and especially with people who are going to be like well you know what let's just let the election decide it i mean that already people say that like let's yeah. just let the election decide this um and certainly next year this is going to take hold everywhere i i do wonder what's going to happen if there's a serious impeachment heat coming like colleen said while you're trying to get the appropriations bills passed um i can imagine in some states of the world that it helps the appropriations bills a permanent cr get through because no one wants to endanger their position on impeachment by shutting down the government or playing that sort of brinksmanship. On your hand, I can see the exact opposite, too. We could also kick it into, I mean, you can kick things into January, certainly, with the, you know, you're still working on, on fiscal 20, you know, when you're supposed to be starting the 21 bills, but right. you're still trying to do the 20 bills. Now, the Senate has marked up a lot of these appropriations bills. Yeah. It's a, in previous years, they haven't done that. How many have they marked up? Ten. 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 Okay. That's a lot of work. So I don't know. I mean, about just letting it go. You know, obviously the default is a year-long CR, and that's what has to happen and has to happen. But I don't know. There's a lot. There's been a lot of, the you know, invest, port, investment, see, you know, a, into the markup. A year-long CR, year CR is is a solution when they can't agree with the money, but it's not the money they can't agree about here. It's, it's the policy the writers. writers. Yeah, the policy right, writers right, need right, to be settled right. whether you do a year-long CR or, or whether you actually do the bills. There's mm -hmm. one policy writer, really, and only one policy writer which is holding everything up. Yeah, the, the wall. wall. And it's the wall. But, but it comes in many flavors, right? Right. It, it comes in... It comes on Milcon. It comes on Milcon. It comes on defense, DOD. Homeland Security. Right? I mean, the Democrats can try and... Like, uh, today, we're trying to... Mm -hmm. you know, we, the con we, the Congress, are trying to end the National Emergency Act. Trump's got to veto that again. You can stuff that in the appropriations bills and dare him to veto that or try to get it in there. Well, but again, you've got a division of power between the House and the Senate so that Shelby's supposedly meeting with the president today to kind of have a... a a come-to meeting to say, hey, this is what's legitimately possible through this appropriations process, this is what's not. Right. Um, and the question will be whether that education will stick or not. Because Trump may just say, well, screw it, if you're not going to give me the wall, I'm not going to pass it, I'm not going to allow anything to go through. And that's essentially what we had happen last time. After 
a few bills sneaked through. Now, those were not minor bills that snuck through, right? You had defense, you had labor HHS sneak through. One of the two that the Senate's not marked up, labor HHS, mm -hmm. um, because they've got issues with Mexico City policy and some other things. So that's another major rider that's out there. Mm -hmm. But I can absolutely see Trump's not. I mean, he, he learns. I can tell you one that's not going to sneak through this time, and that's Ledge Branch. <laughs> yeah. That was, I think, a complete I'm yeah, saying, accident. But uh, I think, uh, you know, if you believe the reporting, the president was very annoyed when he, he learned that Ledge Branch had, had, you know, been in one of those minibuses. Yeah. So I don't think that one's going to sneak through. <laughs> yeah. well, I mean, so go back to early September and look at my tweets. Yeah. I was tweeting about this, saying I can't believe that OMB is letting, and it's OM, it's an OMB problem. Mm -hmm. It's not a president's yeah. problem. Mick what, yeah, Mulvaney storing Maybe. stuff on new servers and holding up some Ukraine stuff and no ledge branch. I, I, I don't think I see. I don't think Trump wants to shut down the government because what he doesn't need now is a serious dip in his approval rating, and it doesn't matter where it comes from. If he takes a serious dip in his approval rating, it increases the chances of people turning on him in his own party. Um, I also don't think the Democrats want to shut down the government right now either. Like no. when you when you hold things hostage, shut down the government, it hurts you. That is one thing. I mean, when I've talked to people um, over recess and, and people, you know, staff that have been around a while, and I ask, I always ask about appropriations um, uh, because obviously it depends a lot about what we can do and can't do where I work. Uh, and so I'm curious about it. Um, uh, and nobody, I have talked to no one, zero staffers who said that they have an appetite for, uh, you know, a shutdown or anything like that. Of course, that's only two legs and there's, it's a, it's, you know, three legs Stool, so. But in 10 months ago, who wanted to shut down? Nobody. We sat here and talked about yeah. the fact that last December, nobody wanted well, to shut pre down. Eventually, the president did. The president, I mean, the president right. did at the end. But I, I agree with you. No one in Congress did. It wasn't a party. Right. So Republicans right. in Congress. December 22 yeah. came late, but like you wanted December 22. So the other thing about NDAA, which can link to the next thing we want to talk about, is NDAA is one of the spots in Congress that you, traditionally you get an enormous amount of bipartisanship. Mm -hmm. right. uh, I would probably say it's the most bipartisan authorizing bill there is. Both mm -hmm. HASC, the House Armed Service it's Committee, like the, SAS, the Senate Armed <laughs> Service Committee, are both uh, well known for bipartisan staff situations mm -hmm. where people are just trying to make good policy and they're not really concerned about those things. Uh, we've seen a little bit of fraying mm -hmm. of this. Recently, there was one heated subcommittee markup this time, mm -hmm. Strategic Forces, right? Mm -hmm. Where you had party line votes moving mm -hmm. stuff along in the House. And, uh, and then this the House, is, like, reported on a party line vote this time. Yeah. There was, like, it was a bipartisan process up to that point, mm -hmm. but since the number didn't meet where the president's budget was, they yeah. all Republicans voted against it last mm -hmm. And so this is another place we're seeing sort of the creeping in of partisanship into every aspect of things on the Hill that, you know, used to be sort of bipartisan or nonpartisan either. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's sort of emblematic of generally what's going on in the Hill. Yeah. I mean, this has happened uh, in the past. Uh, th there's been you know, certainly talk about uh, abortion policy has overwhelmed the NDAA, um, um, uh, the uh, presence of um, Don't Ask, Don't Tell, uh, that whole episode was very uh, divisive on NDAA. Um, and there's been other issues as well, uh, various wars, you know, Iraq, all this. But the process is so embedded. And this is what I wrote about whenever I wrote about the NDAA uh, in, um, in previous uh, publications is that the process itself is so mammoth and so ingrained and so structured that it can actually, it's like I view it like a snowball running, uh, going down a hill. 
it, there's these things that come at it, but it, the snowball is so powerful by the time it gets down the hill, it kind of rolls over right. even the obstacles that are put in its way. Right. And thus far, the snowball's been big enough and strong enough mm-hmm. to be able to kind of take care of these obstacles that hit it, which are not small obstacles um, concerning you know, abortion, social policy, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but in, in the future, it's hard to say and that whenever I did a lot of interviews about the NDAA, probably about five or six years ago, you know, staff was really, uh, current staff and, and, you know, former staff were really split on this issue about, because I asked a final question, is this going to continue going forward or are we going to see a break in the NDAA where there's not going to be passage? And half the people said, no, 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 it's going to continue indefinitely. It's a really strong process. And half of the, half the staff that I talked to said, no, I, I, there's no way it can withstand um, these external forces that are being put upon it. So, I mean, only time will tell. Uh, it's hard to say exactly what would be the defining issue that could possibly uh, cause it not to pass totally. for a year. And like I said before, right. once it doesn't pass, then it's really hard to get that train back on track, I think. Because it was really close a couple of years in the Obama administration well, towards the end, right? That yeah, the one on Don't Ask, Don't Tell was, in, was incredible. It passed the Senate by unanimous consent. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was the very end of the, of the year. Um, it was um, McCain and Carl Levin on the floor. Yep. And, 14, uh, yeah, going by unanimous consent. I mean, that was the only way that it was going to pass because everybody had left. Yeah. Uh, and this was the only way it was going to go forward. And there was an objection, but they got the, the senator to, that was going to object not this to is, object. This so, is actually you know. a good moment to have a procedural break because uh, the Senate passed something by unanimous consent mm-hmm. earlier this week demanding the whistleblower information yeah. from the White House. And a lot of people looked at that and said, oh, wow, look, the Senate is unanimously in favor and, and a 100 zero vote demanding things. But that's not how unanimous consent works. No. Right. A lot of times unanimous consent is used when you don't want to take a vote, when you right. don't want to put people record on things, or when you just want to take things that would have passed the long way by majority vote and just make them go quicker. Uh, and so everyone gets together and says, yeah, this is going to be the outcome, so let's just do it this mm-hmm. way. I don't want to be on record having to make a choice about this. And so unanimous consent can mask a lot of division in the right. Senate, and you shouldn't take anything that passes by UC in the Senate as indicative of a hundred to nothing vote would have right. happened had we actually pulled the lever. so what were the incentives working behind that UC? Well, one, Chuck Schumer was the one that offered the unanimous consent request mm-hmm. to demand the whistleblower information, right? He doesn't mm-hmm. want people in his particular caucus to be taking these tough votes, whether uh, that's John Tester in Montana or Doug Jones in Alabama or mm-hmm. insert vulnerable Democrat here. Um, on the reverse side, uh, he probably doesn't want some Republicans voting for that either, right? Because mm-hmm. that gives them some insulation, right? He would Susan love Collins, to, right? He, he would love to tie Susan Collins too. Um, this this particular mm-hmm. particular scandal. Um, so there's that as well. McConnell doesn't want his members on record for this either. But what's surprising is it passed, right? Nobody objected. Nobody you would objected. half expect yeah. McConnell to go and be like, I object, like he always does. Um, but it it went through, and it was uh, evidently there was enough momentum in the Republican caucus to yes. uh, prevent uh, any objectors from actually mm-hmm. coming forward with an objection and blocking that. So it was a, it's a really, really interesting turn of events because mm-hmm. it kind of, it, it's one of those procedural moments that shows you what's going on behind closed doors without actually like telling you what exactly yeah. is. Yeah. I mean, essentially I assume that Schumer had enough Republicans who wanted this out yeah. that he was going to have the majority so that if he tried to put this on the floor, yeah. then the Republicans were going to have to filibuster to yeah. block it, not the other way around. Yeah. And they were going to be stuck on this yeah. with no way off it. And they weren't going to be able to table a motion to proceed to dealing with this or things like mm-hmm. that. And so they were just going to be stuck 
debating it right. essentially with it being the pending business so they just went with it instead and i also think it shows a certain ambivalence among the republicans about how to handle impeachment uh it seems to me that mcconnell and others are much more interested in making the case and getting to this is not a big deal rather than it's okay to hide the information right and uh and i think that showed because i think that unified the democrats particularly those young freshmen when it was that when it was just like well you're not giving us the information and you need to give it to us we're going to impeach you now we have the information and yeah yeah that's the important thing it's a process that was a process you see that's not a substance you you see so you know there's a big difference there Mm -hmm. it's still interesting how many senators are not going on record though right um uh, saying like I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. Uh, no, my favorite, my, I like a lot of the. If you read these in Politico, they're really funny, and and people can remain nameless. But you know, I was in a committee hearing all morning. Right. <laughs> like, like I don't know. Lie. I was yeah. No, you know, were you doing? Like amazing that right. people are all of a sudden in committee yeah. hearings all morning yeah, and all not these only other were you things. In committee hearings, they were not checking Facebook while right. in that committee hearing. <laughs> Senator Thune hadn't gotten a chance to look over the uh, look over the whistleblower's right. letters. Did Before, read Four-page letter. Did read um, it. Too long. And, yeah. uh, and he's going to study it when he's back in South Dakota for right. the next two weeks. Right. Makes sense. Study that right. and study public opinion. And, and then we have that going on, right? I mean, that's a fascinating timing issue, too. Yeah. I'm is. talking about six weeks, and maybe that's a late low. Maybe it's closer to 12 weeks that we have left here. But the first two weeks of this time period, yeah. be, there, there's only one person who controls the bully pulpit. Right. Mm-hmm. President gets a chance to be the one unified voice right now yeah. that's, because Congress that's, is gone. I think chance is the optimal word there, though, or the, the operative word there, because recesses have not been great for the president right. uh, during his term. When there's no one to bicker with, mm-hmm. he has tended to go off on sort of tangents that are off the agenda and sort of get into silly fights. This is when the hurricane stuff happened during a recess, mm-hmm. right? And uh, just having him sitting around commenting on this, that, or everything has not been great. And so normally I would say, well, a recess is not great for any Democratic momentum here. He's just right. going to kind of stall it. On the other hand, like, I don't think Trump's going to let go of this. If Trump was smart, he'd just let go of this. Right. Just do something else for two and weeks. And also, what happens to the, how many are uncommitted in the House and the, and the Democratic caucus? About 15, is it 15 down? Okay, so there's a handful. And so what happens to those members? They go back. I mean, yeah. they're in swing right. districts, of course. Yeah, you know, right. they're... And what happens? What do they hear? I yeah. don't know what they hear from. I don't know. We're going to find yeah. out what they hear from constituents. Is it all going to be the same? Are all twelve or fifteen going to hear the same thing? Is it going to be split? Is it going to be six are going to hear this and six are going to hear that? Right. I don't know. I mean, that's going to be very interesting to see how this all kind of shakes out because they're obviously not committing until they go home, and they're going yeah. to have two weeks to be home. So that's a long uh, period of time yeah. to be yeah. able to take a little bit of a temperature. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. No. I'm not clear that they're going to come away with any sort of resolute mm-hmm. answers either right i don't think we may maybe we find some people who commit again but i think you're just as likely yeah. to lose a couple people who yeah. maybe committed and are so like well maybe that wasn't the greatest idea i've ever and, heard right? and before the yeah. democrats said how hard to push forward they got to have a better sense of what the senate's going to look like mm-hmm. so let's see what happens to mitt romney in utah right mm-hmm. let's see what happens to collins mm-hmm. let's right. see what happens to some of these other republican senators who are in committee this week. Mm-hmm. Um, next week, they're not in committee. They're back among their constituents. And this for this impeachment to go forward, it's going to have to be driven from the grassroots up. 
And it's going to have to be more than just the Democrats. One thing I'll say about these, about this issue about Ukraine and, and the issue that the president has found himself in is that it's not a terribly difficult issue to understand. I mean, uh, when my husband didn't know about it, I explained it to him in three sentences, right? And he was like, oh, okay. You know, I mean, it like, wasn't like some weird obstruction no, thing. No, it was pretty simple to say, yeah. okay, this is what happened. And, and I, I don't know if that makes a difference or not. And then the other thing that I read somewhere, and I can't remember where, but I thought it was a good observation was that other impeachments have been focused on um, uh, internal behavior, domestic issues. Uh, this is a foreign policy issue. This is clearly mm. about a, a president talking to a foreign right. country, a foreign agent. And does that have that, does that dimension play differently for the American people? Right. I'm not even talking about Congress, but the American people yeah. uh, right. and listening to that and, and processing it. I don't know. You can see it cutting really both ways very easily because on the one hand, it's just true that voters don't care about foreign policy. Right. They just don't. Like it's never been a priority except in wartime when Americans are dying. Right. On the other hand, like if you get to the point where this is equated with this is what Nixon did, but with foreigners, all of a sudden, the gravity of it, you know, ratchets way up to sort right. of like core founders' concerns, and right. so you can see the potential for this being way more explosive. And that's the thing: covering the, up break-ins at the DNC. The hook comes back to the political integrity of the democratic process, right? And so I think that's part of it that makes it easy to explain. It's like he's trying to get dirt on a somebody who he could potentially run against, right? Right. Um, and that's the, that's the thing that makes it, it kind of brings it back. And I think it, there's something to it that like it's mm -hmm. easily understandable, mm -hmm. right? Members don't have to like create a jigsaw puzzle yeah. for constituents to understand mm -hmm. and then like lay it out in front of them and say like, this is how all the pieces fit together. Like this is pretty straightforward. There's a transcript, yeah. there's a memo, um, and there's a couple other things. Uh, one thing I will say about this, I don't think it will necessarily be a grassroots type thing. I think uh, public opinion, generally speaking, typically revolves around the kind of cues that voters are getting. Um, and if more Republicans go back or they find something particularly uh, troubling about the information that they're hearing, um, well, that's going to start mixing the cues that Republicans are getting. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, we should take this more seriously because there are more Republicans on board like saying there's yeah. an actually troubling thing here. Um, the question is, like, are, is whether or not uh, Republican senators and Republican House members are going to get the kind of cues from their constituents uh, that they can step out and actually voice concerns that they may have with any of the news or allegations that are out there. Uh, there very much is like this chicken and egg type thing where um, voters do take their cues from people in their party. And if people in their party start mixing signals, then suddenly you can start to see public opinion unraveling fairly quickly. Um, the flip side of this is that we are in such a stable period of public opinion that we may not see that much of a decline, even if it was precipitous. Right? Yeah. So you may be talking about like, oh, well, he lost seven points. Well, that puts him at 35%. Is that an impeachable percentage of approval? Who knows? Right, but what, what we just found is he just increased by 7%, right? Um, the, yeah, he just hit Trump's approval rating just went up 7%. I mean, um, I don't. The polling average, the yeah. polling average, but is not the average is there, yeah. right. or something like that. It's not, there and that's yet. been on the. He's that's been, been on very, the increase. But he's for been like very stable, hasn't he? It fluctuated right. from like thirty-five, 38 to or, yeah, yeah, right. and, and he hasn't really will, deviated. Right. I, I will mm -hmm. say, since the news has been out, and it's these things kind of take like a week or two to register, right. and the I don't, one poll right. I don't know why. I have no clue why, but. 
the one thing that I will say is that he has been on the increase for the most part for the last five to seven days yeah. um, in the polling average. And so I have no, I cl- no clue what that means. It was up to 43%. Now it's back to 42 and a half. Who knows <laughs> where it goes from here? But basically, we're not seeing some kind of precipitous decline, at least not yet, right. so, if it was going to happen. Going back to the Harkins history corner, which you always have to have. I'm thinking back towards 94, and I remember back in 94 when um, one of the guys who I worked for later, but at the time, was going back to a town hall meeting in like March of 94. Uh, And this is when the Democrats were starting to unravel. Um, You had the crime bill coming out, you had some other things. But in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, a member of Congress had to leave a town hall meeting escorted with two police officers. Um, This is a Democrat in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, who was being yelled at and to get him to his car, he had to have police. So, I mean, maybe it was part of the Democratic's message being bifurcated or, or, or muddied, as you're saying, Josh. But there was a groundswell of people that started to show that this was an issue. And that guy ultimately ended up losing his seat. Well, how um, many members do town hall meetings? Didn't they? Yeah. A couple of years ago, they it's started. It's gone down dramatically. Yeah, yeah it's gone right? way down. I think, Justin Amash is still doing the, it. Yeah, he still does them. <laughs> the yeah, substitution for, of... Uh, digital type events and right. communication constituents combined with the lessons learned after the mm-hmm. Tea Party summer yeah. uh, and the anti-Trump mm-hmm. stuff going on has, I, I think, generally the negative partisanship. Mm-hmm. It's like, so you have to hold a town hall meeting and who's showing up at now? It's people want to scream at you in a lot of cases. That was always true to a certain right. degree. Right. But at least they were screaming at you about policy then. Mm-hmm. Now they're just screaming at you because you support the president or don't support the president, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that's not fun. And then also, I mean, because of Twitter and other social media, you don't know who's actually showing up to your actual, even in-person right. town hall meetings because the town hall meetings go viral online and people right. from surrounding, Area. you know, neighboring districts or whatever that are motivated come out and, and are going to try to, you know, take a shot at you. So, you know, being a member of Congress, I know people, uh, it's, it, you know, people, um, uh, there's a lot of condemnation around uh, these days, but it's not necessarily being a house member let's just say it's not exactly the easiest job in the world i just want to you know we should reiterate that yeah Yeah, but but the pay the pay is long 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 days long 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 weeks you have to yell i mean people are screaming at you you've got everybody under the sun who's got an opinion about what you did or didn't do and it's sometimes based in fact Right, so it's like it's 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 and a more tough and more job. about things you can't control. Yeah, thirty-five years ago, when politics was much more localized for these members, uh, people would yell at them about things in their community that they could take back. Now, if someone comes to you and yells at you about a national issue, like your ability to control that is so slight um, that you know, you know. The famous Fenno quote from his book is that you know every member of Congress dreams of showing up at the grocery store and just telling someone who comes up to them to fuck off, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> Leave me alone. They can't do that. And what are they yelling at these members about at the grocery store? You know, it used to be like what's going on in town or what's going on in the city or the interests here, the, the jobs and things like that. And now they might be yelling at them about impeaching the president or tariffs, right, or relations with Russia or border walls a thousand miles away from them, right, where they're gun one control. vote or gun control. Right? Mm-hmm. All these things that. Members have limited ability to take care of. If you were worried about the roads down on Route 2 or whatever, mm-hmm. a member could be able to get an earmark and fix that. Right? These are different issues now in a nationalized environment. And I think 
you know, that's just another reason being a member seems a lot less fun to me now than it used to. Well, let's go to something a little more positive and talk about some of the things that Colleen's doing yeah. outside. <laughs> so, Colleen, you are the vice chair of the Women's Suffrage Centennial Commission. Tell us about that. That's right. Um, congressional commissions. Uh, I don't know how many people know about congressional commissions. I take it from reading the CRS report. Uh, <laughs> Which I wrote. That, yeah, right. That there's, a, there's been about 100 of them in existence uh, in the past 20, 25 years. Uh, and a lot of times these are policy commissions missions that are created by Congress. So they, they bring together a group of outside um, citizens that are appointed by members of Congress to investigate a particularly difficult policy issue. Like the debt. Yeah, yeah, there's debt. There's been a, there's been a lot of different um, uh, in in various sort of niche policy issues. But then there's also commemorative commissions, and and of course the Women's Suffrage Centennial Commission is a commemorative commission to celebrate the hundredth anniversary of the Nineteenth Amendment. Yeah, started in in 2019 with congressional passage of the amendment, so we had those celebrations in both the House and Senate already, and then we're going to move towards the national celebration in 2020 as we celebrate ratification in, in the various states. So it's very exciting. I also think that a lot of people think that these sorts of things aren't part of politics because they're not part of politics as they think of them, like d dividing up like who gets what. But how we choose to memorialize our history is an okay. extremely political thing. And the Women's Suffrage Centennial Commission mm -hmm. is a small piece of that, but if you ever have looked into or even just thought about the disputes over which monument should be on the mall or the right. fight over the Lincoln Memorial mm -hmm. uh, 100 years ago or how to remember Confederate soldiers in the South, right? Mm -hmm. These are very much uh, constitutive of American identity. And so when these things exist or don't exist, it is a statement by the public of what's important to us and what our values are. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't think that, you know, it's a different sort of anger to the politics when you think about statues of Lee in Charlottesville, Virginia, or Women's Intelligence in Washington, mm -hmm. but I don't think they're actually distinct issues. This is all about what we value as a society. And so I think these things are much more important uh, than a lot of people usually give them credit for. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, what is what's chosen in a commission to be, in this case of our Women's um, Centennial Commission, about we were actually have funding, you know, attached to this hey. commission. So some commissions nice. are not funded. Yeah. Some commissions get the power to raise money. Um, we had the power to raise money, but we were also funded, uh, which shows that there was a lot of uh, support behind this particular commission. And then, of course, the decisions, you create a democratic body that has to decide how are you going to spend uh, yeah, what's uh, that this been money. Like? Are, it's you, been... are you president of the Senate? <laughs> <laughs> it's been interesting. It is, you know, uh, because uh, I've been in a lot of different positions, but, you know, primarily supportive positions, you know, a staffer uh, mm -hmm. for a member of Congress, CRS, obviously supporting uh, members of Congress from both sides of the aisle and both houses. Um, but in, on the commission, you know, I'm a voting commissioner, so uh, it's, a, it's a big change, actually. The first meeting, uh, yeah, we have staff, of course I <laughs> staff, <laughs> which is completely different uh, because I was always the staff. And right. uh, it's, it's really uh, the first meeting when I went to it, um, I realized that I was sitting at the table and I was sitting with the microphone and I was the person who was actually voting. Now, I'm, I'm representing my institution, the Library of Congress. I'm representing my boss the librarian of Congress. So I'm very mindful of that. It's not just Colleen Shogan representing yeah. herself. I'm representing the institution. But still, uh, so it's it. a different position to be in. And, and um, you know, we have some pretty 
interesting people on the commission, including Senator Mikulski, and she's a really seasoned legislator, uh, was the chair of the Appropriations Committee in the Senate, the first longest-serving woman in Congress in American history, and the, uh, the first woman to chair the Appropriations Committee in the Senate. And to sit across the table from her, uh, you know, that's a pretty that's pretty interesting. I mean, I never thought I would be in that position, and that in itself is just thrilling. So that's awesome. And lots of stuff. And you've got the plans are coming together for what's going to happen next year. Absolutely, plans are coming together. We're um, you know, museums are actually being small museums are being built, and we're able to support those museums. We're doing a lot of programs in localities so that you can become a suffrage city, working with the, um, with the mayors across the United States so that um, cities are able to become a suffrage city that, that, and will uh, participate with us in those, um, uh, in those celebrations. And, uh, you know, we're, we're just really trying to get the word out that we've hired a very big uh, multimedia firm who's going to help us with our communications all going into 2020. We just want to raise awareness about this so that people at some point in 2020 realized that women have had the vote for 100 years yeah. and it is a long time but it's also not that long yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. amount of a time i always you uh, know i always talk to my classes i'm talking about the constitution and its roots in english history i talk about how few people could vote in england in 1700 sometimes we think of 1700s england is yeah. a sort of proto-democracy right where you got a king but you also have the house of commons and only about 3% of people could participate in England. People are always like, oh, okay, well, that's not a democracy. But you think about America in right. 1900, and if you look at the actual percentage of the population that was right. part, could participate, it was men over 21, um, and in most states, white men over 21 right. were functionally able to participate. And when you start thinking about that, that's not a huge percentage of the population. You start talking yeah. about topping out at like a quarter or 30% of the population at right. some point uh, when, you, when, when you think about that. And so... Uh, this idea of universal suffrage, uh, or at least universal adult suffrage, mm -hmm. is really a relatively recent phenomenon in most of the Western, Western right. world. Yeah, exactly. And uh, the longest, it was the longest social movement in American history. Started, most people put the start, although historians disagree, but most people put the start at 1848 at Seneca Falls, mm -hmm. and that goes to 1920. So you're talking uh, over eight decades of a social movement, and the longest and largest social movement in American history, and of course the largest enfranchisement uh, at any one moment in time in American history uh, with the passage of the 19th Amendment. And trying to try to you know appreciate the story of what some of these women did. I mean, this movement was so long, the women that started the movement you know, unfortunately, we're dead by the time the 19th Amendment came. They never yeah. saw the fruition. So there's generations of stories um, to be able to tell. I think some of my favorite stories really are local. So if you have people that are listening in the Washington, D.C. area, um, a lot of it, towards the end, in 1916, 1917, a lot of the suffragists sort of started to think, well, we're not getting enough attention here. And uh, they started to adopt some of the strategies from their British counterparts who were having a little bit more success than them. And uh, they started to, be, to engage in civil disobedience. Uh, and they were, of course, the suffragists were the first individuals to, to picket the White House. They were the first. They stand in front of the White House, right? Wilson's the president, and they've got the picket signs. And then some of them get increasingly pointed towards um, President Wilson, using his own words against him. You know, because Wilson's talking about democracy. Mm -hmm. You know, this is World War One. He's talking about freedom. He's talking about liberty. And they're using his own words against him. This starts to make President Wilson angry, as you might imagine. You know, he's trying to hold the line on suffrage. He's not a big supporter, even though we think of Wilson as a progressive, not a big supporter. And before you know it, those women start getting arrested, you know, in front of the White House. And where do they end up? 
they end up in the prison uh, down in Occoquan, down down 95, oh, yeah. 25 <laughs> miles down 95. Oh, Lord. <laughs> Vernon, keep going. Yeah. It's way and, down there. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's, it's a prison and it's a workhouse. And, and many, many women spent uh, various sentences at Occoquan at the workhouse. Um, those buildings are no longer there, but other representative buildings are there. And it's great that the workhouse is now building a Lucy Burns Museum. Lucy Burns was the suffragist that spent the most days in Occoquan. And so they're building a museum in her memory, and that will open in a few months. And I think that's terrific because I don't think a lot of people, a lot of women know or a lot of men know that women actually went to jail. I mean, right. you know, they went to prison. Um, you know, it was very bad conditions. They were force-fed in some situations because they all went on hunger strikes um, because they claimed that they were political prisoners and they should be treated as such. So it's a fascinating story in history, and I hope people, as well as commemorating and thinking about the 19th Amendment and the 100th anniversary, we also learn a little bit uh, about the history because it's uh, it's fascinating. Yeah. Probably undertold, too, I think. Mm -hmm. All righty. Well, that's excellent. Thank you, Tony, <laughs> for joining us here on Congress Two Beers In. We've hit the 40-minute mark, so I think it's time to call it quits. We will see you next time. Thanks for listening.